Good morning. Our scripture verse, our scripture reading today is from Genesis and chapter 4. We'll be reading Genesis, the entire chapter, chapter 4. I'll give you a minute to turn to that. Genesis 4, and starting in verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and born Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, 
Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, one of the really beautiful things about the Bible is that it gives us a world in life view. The Bible gives us a worldview. Now, every single human being, everybody here, uh, whether you're a Christian or you're a Buddhist, Muslim, uh, maybe you don't have any particular religious leanings or you're trying to figure out who is Jesus and what is this big deal about the, the Scriptures, regardless of where you are, every single one of us has a worldview. All right, every single one of us has to deal with and answer the big questions of life, such as, why are we here? Uh, what's wrong with the world? What's going to make things right? Uh, where are we going? What hope do I have? And not just the big questions, but how these big questions filter down into our daily lives. Like, why is my family such a wreck? And how come whenever things start to go really well for me at work, it just sort of starts to explode? Biblical world and life view or worldviews are very important. Every single one of us has one. And up to this point in the Bible, it's, it's given us a... Genesis 1 through 11 has the most cosmic scope when it comes to informing our biblical world and life view. You see in Genesis 1 and 2 that the God of the Bible is different than all other gods, ancient or modern, that he is absolutely transcendent, right? That he is other, that he is the creature and we are... He is the creator and we are creatures, he interacts with the world, but he's not dependent upon it or infused with it in any way. He is wholly other. And yet, at the same time, in addition to being transcendent, he's also imminent. He's deeply involved in his creatures' lives. He walks and talks and communicates with Adam and Eve. And then we see in Genesis 3, the problem is introduced into the world, and the Bible calls it sin. Right? And at root, the problem, our problem as human beings is not a lack of education or funding or opportunity or environmental mismanagement, but it's rebellion against God. What's wrong with the world has a religious root. That's what Genesis 3 shows us, and it shows us the absolute rebellion of human beings against God and the depth of that. And then what we see as we move into Genesis 4 is the scope of this thing called sin. This isn't just a one-time deal that happened with Adam and Eve. It's become a permanent feature of humanity. Sin is no longer a bug. It's a feature. It's, it's what happens. And Genesis 4 shows us that we aren't sinners because we do bad things, but we do bad things because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And there's this downward spiral, this plunge into darkness that goes on in Genesis 1 through 4. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the pit. But at the very end, and throughout chapter 4, we see glimmers of hope that God is good and gracious and kind to people who don't deserve it. And Genesis 4 shows us that God gives favor, by faith, God gives favor to the unfavorable. 
By faith, God grants favor to the unfavorable. Now, there's a lot going on in Genesis chapter 4. We have jealousy, sibling rivalry, fratricide, murder, theft, polygamy. I mean, all sorts of problems are going on. So to get a better idea of, of what is at the core of Genesis 4, we're going to look at two other small passages, one in Hebrew 11 and one in 1 John 3. And the reason we do this, the reason why we take one passage of the Bible but then look at other passages of the Bible to help inform us is because the, the Bible is self-authenticating, right? It's self-interpreting. Maybe you've gotten into an argument with somebody, try to talk to them about Jesus, and they say to you, well, that's just your interpretation. Or maybe you're trying to understand the Bible yourself and you're scratching your head or you've, you've had a, a conversation with Pastor Mark, and you walked away, and you would never say this to his face, but you thought, well, that's just his interpretation. How do we know who has the right interpretation, right? It feels like a gotcha question if we're engaging with somebody, and they say, well, that's just your interpretation. It seems really intelligent, but it's actually an anti-intellectual move. Uh, it's kind of a dumb move, because it, it misses the root problem. Because the root problem is not whether or not we have an interpretation or you have an interpretation. The root problem is who has the right interpretation and how do we know? That's the root problem. So anytime somebody says that's just your interpretation or anytime you might think that, well, that's just their interpretation, you're missing the point. And the reasoning of the Bible goes like this. This, this is the reasoning of the scripture. If the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us as creatures. And if the God of the Bible is true, right, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And if this is his word, then there can't be any other thing to validate it, right? There's no third-party verification for the scriptures. There's no experiment which is going to confirm the validity of it. If this is the God of the universe who made all things, and if this is speech, it validates itself, and so that's why we take one passage and look at different passages. So here's what Hebrews 11 and 1 John 3 have to say about Genesis 4. Hebrews 11:4 says this. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith. Though he died, he still speaks. And then 1 John 3 Verse 11 says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So when we look to other portions of the Bible to help us understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain and Abel have two fundamentally different dispositions in relating to God. Abel is relating to God by faith. God, Abel is trusting in God's promises as the way to properly relate to him, and Cain is not. Cain is relating to God on his terms in his ways. Now, we're not privy to exactly what those standards were. This is before the giving of the law at Sinai. It's not clearly spelled out, but there's enough information there that God would have given them that they were responsible for it. And it's very tempting on a first reading of chapter 4 to say, okay, well, 
Abel's sacrifice uh, was a blood sacrifice, and there's no, like Hebrews says, there's no forgiveness of sins without the remission of blood, and Cain was just fruit and grain, so that's the difference between the two. But that's not actually what's going on, because the type of gift that's specified here is a mincha, which is a fellowship offering. It's just a standard relating to God. It's not a sin offering that's taking place. So at root, there's just a fundamental difference of disposition towards God. Abel is operating by faith, and Cain is operating upon some other principle, either self-reliance or dependence upon his own wisdom or what his buddies recommended on how he should relate to the deity. But they're two fundamental different dispositions. And every single one of us operates by faith. Everybody operates by faith. Faith is not some sort of random existential leap in the dark, as much as Kierkegaard's a great thinker. Faith is not some sort of old-school Disney movie when you wish upon her star, Jiminy Cricket, everything comes true. Faith is engaging with the unseen reality, the unseen world that governs our visible world. Faith is engaging with the unseen world that governs our visible world, right? Every single time you balance a checkbook. Well, does anybody balance checkbooks anymore? Or whatever, use your debit card. Anytime you use your debit card and you see that your bank account is in the black rather than in the red, you're engaging in the realm of faith. You're dabbling in mathematics, pluses and minuses, negatives and positives, credits and debts, It's an unseen world that governs the visible reality, how we act, how we buy food, what we do, whether or not we need to get a second job to pay the bills. Or anytime you listen to music or play a musical instrument, you are dabbling in the world of faith. You're engaging in an unseen reality that governs the seen, visible world, right? There's this whole body of stuff out there called music theory. And even if you don't know it, uh, even if you can't read sheet music, there's laws that govern how these physical things should be done, right? And if you don't listen to major scales and minor scales and sevenths and fifths and this, that, and the other and rhythm, it's going to be a disaster. So whether you know that stuff or not, it's there, and there's an unseen world that governs the visible. And what the Bible is saying is, is, look, the Bible isn't revealing how to run your checkbook necessarily or how to play music, but it is saying there is an unseen spiritual reality, right, where God governs it. And the Bible is this self-revelation of God saying, if you want to relate to me, these are the terms with which it should affect the visible world. That's what it means to operate by faith. It is intellectual. It is uh, a use of the will. It is reasonable. It is something that everybody does all the time. In fact, if we were to go back to Hebrews, where we learned about Cain's operating by faith, Hebrews uh, chapter 11 starts this way. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that faith is simply the acknowledgement that there is an unseen world which governs the visible world. And the Bible is the ultimate reality of that unseen world. The Bible is the physics of the soul. And it is by faith 
that God grants favor to the unfavorable. Favoritism is a really nasty thing. Um, when right before the birth of our oldest child, my wife and I uh, wanted to go do counseling because the birth of a child is a nodal event. There's all these things that happen in human lives that are nodal events like birth, death, marriage, unfortunately sometimes divorce, geographical location, retirement, where the, the ways that our families have been working and the gears with which they have been turning, during these nodal events they loosen up a little bit and there's an opportunity for change during these nodal events that aren't necessarily present in uh, the other parts of life during the other periods of time. So we said, hey, let's, let's go to counseling, let's work out some of these things. So my wife and I sat down with the counselor and the very first thing he did was he looked straight at us and said, who's the favorite in your family? Very first question. He wasn't joking. He said, who's the favorite in your family? Make no mistake about it, Cain is the favorite in this family. It's all over the place. If you look at verse 1, this is how Cain is celebrated by Eve. She says in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, and look at verse 2. How is Abel introduced? And she bore his brother Abel. Abel is defined in the terms of his older brother, not on his own terms. But Abel isn't simply a, a mommy's boy. He's also a daddy's, or Cain isn't simply a mommy's boy. Cain is also daddy's little helper too. Because if we go just a couple verses up in chapter 3 and look at this description of Adam when he's exiled from the garden, it says this in verse 23 of chapter 3. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then when we're introduced to Adam in, ver in uh, verse 2, it's, or then when we're introduced to Cain in verse 2, it says, Cain, a worker of the ground. Cain is taking part in the family business. He's doing just what dad did, but not Abel. Abel is a shepherd, a dirty, stinky, exiled person who would have been roaming about on the pasture lands and on the hills while Cain would have been at home working the family farm. And if that's not enough, what really drives it home is that Cain's name is mentioned 16 times in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a complete literary unit. Cain's name is mentioned 16 times in this literary unit, and Abel's name is mentioned eight times. Cain is twice as important as Abel. It's, uh, it's really nasty. And what this does is this is just a destructive cocktail which just pulls together all the jealousy and all the bitterness that he gets basically dethroned as the golden child when God rejects his sacrifice and Abel's is accepted. He's used to being the center of attention and always getting the pat on the back for the entirety of his life. And now he's been dethroned and his pride comes reeling. And what chapter 4 is meant to show us is that this thing called sin is getting deeper and wider. Because in chapter 3, God shows up to Adam and Eve and says, where are you? What have you done? And then when he goes to talk to Cain in chapter 4, he says, where's Abel? What have you done? But unlike chapter 3, where Adam and Eve had to be talked into their sin by Satan, Cain can't be talked out of his sin by God himself. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve's rebellion curses the ground, but Cain's rebellion curses himself. It gets deeper and harder. Make no mistake, this is a recipe for disaster. 
You know, maybe growing up, you were the person who always was defined by your brother. Your brother was a star pupil, headed to med school, great grades, had a wonderful career as a doctor, and periodically throughout your life, in very explicit and very behind-the-scenes ways, you constantly heard from your parents, why can't you be more like John? Or maybe your sister was a star athlete, attractive, socially capable, able at handling finance, climb the corporate ladder beautifully, and you just aren't. You're not as socially capable, you're not as physically attractive or as coordinated. And that has led to all sorts of tension and problems. Or maybe you're the person who has been at the center of attention the entirety of your life, and all of this undue attention has fermented you into a great A jerk. Whatever it may be, the circumstances of our lives are always significant, but they are never determinative. The circumstances of our lives are always significant, but they are never determinative. This was a complete disaster for both Cain and Abel and the parents. But Cain still had volitional responsibility for doing what he did in murdering his brother. And friends, if you feel like your family's in the ditch, know that from the very beginning of time, God has been pulling families out of ditches. And families have repeatedly drove and driven into the ditch time and time again. This is a family who had it all. I mean, Adam and Eve walked with God face to face in the garden. And even when they screwed up, God clothed them. God sacrificed and clothed their nakedness in skins. And it just gets worse and worse to the very same point where at the end of the passage, Eve cannot mention Cain's name without mentioning Abel's name in the same breath. Her heart is so broken that she can't mention the child who murdered her son and also is exiled from God's face in their face. The Lord loves families deeply and redeems them, not just individuals, but whole families. And the circumstances of our lives are always significant, but they're never determinative, because the only difference between us and Cain is a difference of degree and not kind. So you'd be very foolish for us to sit here and think like, whew, Cain, that is some case study. Like, he's uh, locked up in Jehovah Penitentiary for the rest of his life and not getting out, he's doing hard time. I'm not like him. That's not, that's not true. Jesus' whole point in this Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you have heard it say to you, you, you have heard it said to you, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you are so much as angry with your brother, you've committed murder. Jesus is driving at the fact that the seed of every sin lives in each one of our hearts, and the problem is that just as Abel's blood was crying out for justice against Cain, our own sins cry out against us for justice before God. Justice must be served. Something has to be done about this sin. In fact, one commentator, reviewing this section and thinking through it, has this to say. He says that the, the sa'ak, the cry in Hebrew, is found throughout different passages in the Bible as those who are oppressed, those without food, those who need to be delivered from bondage, a woman being raped in the wilderness. There's all this cry that Abel's blood issues is a dramatic and intense cry, and it's a cry for justice. And it would be answered. The cry of Abel's blood would echo down through the generations, but it would be answered not in a way that Cain would have seen coming or that Eve would have anticipated, 
or that Adam would ever dreamed of. Because through the line of Seth, who was sort of the replacement from Abel, another son would come. And rather than ratcheting up the intensity of hatred and malice in the human race, like Lamech, who took it to the 77th degree, when Jesus was approached by Peter, and Peter said, how often should I forgive my brother? Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. What Lamech and what Adam and Eve and their sin was ratcheting up, what, what we, by default, want to jump into, Jesus takes and inverts and reverses the curse. And Jesus' blood would cry out from the ground that received it. But not for judgment. The justice that Jesus brings is the insane justice of forgiveness. So that anybody who comes to him and pleads his blood, though our sins cry out against us, they are silenced at the cross, and we can be made right with God in restoration. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that it is by faith that you show favor to the unfavorable. Uh, Cain was the clear favorite, and that ruined him. Abel was uh, not very favorable, and yet you were kind to him. Uh, But it wasn't because of anything within themselves. It wasn't because of any sort of victim mindset. It was because Abel exercised faith. And what Abel couldn't see clearly, we can see very clearly. That it's the blood of your son Jesus that cries out, not for judgment, but for forgiveness, that it is just for you, Father, to forgive us in Christ. That is something that they could not have anticipated. That's something that we cannot anticipate, and something beautiful and true. Lord, would you be kind to us this week and show us the various ways where we harbor grudges and malice and bitterness in obvious and not-so-obvious forms, at work or with our family, with our friends, Would you cultivate within us a heart of repentance uh, where we call to you, where we claim the blood of Jesus in cleansing and renewing and to give us graciousness and mercy where it previously did not exist. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.